I think there's a pathway where Bitcoin becomes like a global reserve asset for the world. So you could think of this in a simple way, like the bank core, gold, these kind of reserve assets at points in monetary history where there was fiat currencies that were either backed by or built on a credit layer on top of a kind of neutral reserve asset. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome to BCB, purveyors of the finest Bitcoin content two degenerate firemen can muster to produce for our discerning audience. This week, we spoke to Steven Lubka. This episode was fun as hell, and we picked this one up mid-convo because, frankly, we are sick of having some of our best content go unused in the pre-conversation niceties. We reveal our deepest secret. The fact that we don't really know what the heck we're doing. And we're willing to wager that you probably don't know what you're doing either. Steve was a showcase guest, able to dive deep into the thickest parts of this partly philosophical, partly economical, and partly ball-sunning conversation. We get dead serious for a discussion about inflation, CPI, the hubris of predictions, and the considerations of high net worth individuals and family offices when buying Bitcoin. We also slum it in a few spots later in the discussion about sunning your balls. Be aware that at the end of the conversation, we do include a bit of profanity. We would have it no other way. If you are the kind of Twitter pleb who has seriously considered sunning yourself down under, you probably don't keep your Bitcoin on an exchange. We would posit that you should be keeping those precious sats on a cold card Mark IV at a minimum. Ideally, you keep that Bitcoin in a multi-sig setup, leveraging the benefits that Satoshi has blessed us with. You can set up and use a Mark IV in tandem with a tap signer to create a great multi-sig setup. You can also throw your hat into the ring and pre-order a Q1. This device is the god king of signing devices, giving you a ton of optionality. Check out CoinKite's website and use code BCB for a juicy discount on a Mark IV. As a reminder, next month is Bitcoin Amsterdam. We have a coupon code to satiate your wanderlust. Use code BCB for 10% off tickets to either Bitcoin Amsterdam or Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville next year. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation. Or I'm in year seven. Josh, okay. what are you in year 11? I'm, on, I'm going up to, no, year 13 in January. Holy fuck. So, I know. Fucking old man. That's a long yeah. time. You start realizing it, you know, like, especially in our career, because everyone who gets hired is young. Everyone who retires is old. I mean, like any career, but you, you stick around for the entire time. So you see this arc and I'm right smack in the middle of it. And it's weird getting to be the old guy. Like the transition is weird. What is the weirdest part about it? Just that you're not the young guy anymore. Like, you know, it, that transition from realizing that people actually expect you to know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, you've been here for 12 years. You didn't know that you can't, you can't let anyone know that, you know, you've got to play like, oh yeah, I, I knew that I was just testing you. That's how you play that. Our career Lubka is a perpetual state of fake it till you make it. Yes. We all have a lot of training. We're all paramedics and we've gone to tons of fire classes and have all these certifications but what happens to human beings in the wild is so dynamic that there is i mean i'm sure you agree josh every week or month you're on a call where you're like i don't know what the solution is going to be here but we're going to keep problem solving and pretend like we have this incident scene under control <laughs> that's funny you say that we had 
a kid got run over by a van uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. And we, we have these airbags that can lift 40 tons. So they're the go-to for lifting anything heavy off of anybody. And they're really great. Each one of them can raise 18 inches. And I had two of them ready to go to stack up. But I'm like, as I'm pulling this shit out, it's been a minute since I put this together. Because we almost, it's very rare that we use these things. We train yeah. on them every year, but it's been like a year. Yeah. So I was like, oh shit, I got to put this together quick. And I'm not 100%, but I'm like 99% I know how. Made it look good. Had yeah. no problems. But, but there it, is, there's that trepidation while you're putting it together. Like, did I put that hose on the right spot? Hope so. I, but I'm that's sure there's everything. parallels to... Yeah, exactly. That's you just took the words right? out of my mouth. Yeah. 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 No, because it's, it's you know, I know you guys love exploring economics and all that. I mean, I think that's the big, that's the big lie. And I don't even say that in like a, a negative context, even in the, the sense of like a noble lie. But, you know, I think right. part of growing up, of becoming an adult, you transition from this like, well, there's all these adults out there that clearly know what they're mm. doing. They know. Really yeah. Know. And yeah. as you progress in your career, as you get older, you start to realize, no, they don't like anywhere. Right. Like it doesn't. I, I remember the first time I worked with like big corporate clients, like multi-billion dollar corporate. And I was like, OK, these guys have got to be like the the sharp. These are got to be like the <laughs> smartest people I've ever met. They're working for, you know, name brand companies. And you get in the room and it's like. I don't want to say anything derogatory, but like half of them don't know what they're doing. Like it's right. like, and it's like, oh my God, like this is just, this is just the world. This is just the human condition. And like, it doesn't Absolutely. matter if you're a firefighter or a central banker, probably more yeah. so if you're a central banker, but you're making it up as you go along, which, and, and I think that's actually like a, not a good way to frame it actually, because it's not that you're making it up as you go along. It's that reality is dynamic and unpredictable. Yes. It's, it's not it's not that like there's someone else that might know exactly what to do all the time. No, it's that you're constantly navigating dynamic situations as they occur. Totally. Right. And the hubris, when you see the hubris of people that you know are faking it and they're pretending they know, but they it's it's like one of those you know they're lying, they know they're lying yeah. and you yeah, they like, know that you know that they're lying, but everyone's got to make this pretend charade go on. And that's it's I, yeah, you're right. As you grow up, you realize that like nobody really has it all figured out. We're all just kind of figuring it out as we go. And that's why that that quote, and I can't remember what philosopher said it, but it's it's basically to the effect of the more you know, the more you realize you don't yeah. know. And, and then you get some humility from that. And I think it's a healthy bit of humility it is. to move your way through this world. It totally. Is. It, it, what it comes down to is the learning process is just one of improving problem solving and critical thinking. Exactly. And this is why we're harping on here all the time about how imperative it is that you take in multiple perspectives and be multiple multidisciplinary. If you are only yes. reading Bitcoin books and only listening to economists who care about Bitcoin, just to, to give one example yep. here in the financial realm, you're fucking up. Yeah. You need to be Arrow. taking in diverse perspectives. And as that process grows and as maturity lengthens, ideas puzzle pieces fit together that you didn't think were possible and you don't even know where it came from. And that's the holistic learning process that's so important that everyone needs to embark on and that I'm trying to be in the middle of here at this stage of life. I'm a huge proponent of uh, being a generalist. Like I've been my whole life. I think we've entered a world that is so hyper specialized that we tell everybody, you know, you need to go be a specialist in this one narrow thing. And it's a disaster. It's a, it's a complete and utter disaster. 
Yeah, absolutely. What Dan, what you were just saying really resonates with me because I we're talking to uh, Jason Meyer next week, and I just started reading his book last night because I'm a procrastinator. One of my favorite things about the first few chapters of this book is that he talks about how he's been exposed more to you know conservative uh, worldviews, mm. and he's a you know been a liberal his entire adult life according to his book, and about how good it is to expose yourself to these alternative worldviews. Like for myself. I'm bent conservative, libertarian, but exposing my, I try to expose myself to those views more often, but I tend to just, you know, stay in my own, um, resonance, you know, that, that everyone wants their own echo chamber to listen to the same things over and over, but it's an incredibly good approach to living yeah. your life. And I think that's my favorite takeaway from his book so far. I think of the message to a lot of Bitcoiners who tend to lean more conservative is, Branch over to the liberal side. Yeah, I just said it. I know it's anathema to a lot of people, but if you are someone that sits there and goes, no, there's there's no thoughtful, responsible, critical yeah. thinking liberals, then you're in a filter bubble. There's no other way to say it. There's plenty of them out there. There's no perfect system. And there are arguments on both sides of the political fiscal spectrum, especially as things break down. As things break down, it's very clear that both mainstream viewpoints only have part of the picture and are sort of missing the fact that the entire foundation of the house is fucked up. I think a lot of people are trying to row in the same direction, Steve, yep. but just there's, an, there's no perfect solutions when the system and the concrete is this fragmented. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think it gets even more nuanced when you realize like a liberal of 50 years ago is a mm. conservative today. And so these yeah. are moving targets. They do not in any sense of the imagination, like stay the same, like, like what progressives were fighting for 50 years ago would be considered probably like far right today. And so even these categories as like static doesn't, doesn't make any sense, you know, and then that's, you know, we probably don't have to go like too deep down that, but there's a whole interesting rabbit hole there of how that moves and changes and like kind of the dynamism i view them as like two core human impulses there is a kind of like the impulse impulse towards change towards revision towards revolution and there's an impulse towards preservation towards you know maintaining the value from the past from the current way and if you lose either one of those like you 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 know society goes off the rails you know if if those aren't functioning appropriately you're either stagnant or you're in this like crazy, un 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 unruttered, unmoored, like, you know, just uh it's right. that you're going through. Yeah. I think part of the reason, obvious is obvious statement, but one of the main reasons for the moving target and the and the change in worldviews is dynamics changing. So yes. one example I think of a lot is let's just take liquidity insertion. Yeah. When you have this much liquidity and backstopping generally coming from the top, if we're just yep. to take numbers, let's just distill it down to, to QE. When this much comes from the top and this much wealth inequality ensues, there yep. is an understandable and natural impulse from the average Jill and Joe to want some of that liquidity coming from below. Now, I think yep. a lot of the solutions that liberals and progressives propose make no sense and the incentives aren't aligned. But you can understand their train of thought. We Bitcoiners would present a different solution, but you can't yeah. demonize people for trying to solve a very valid, obvious, and increasingly noticeable yes. and quantifiable problem in, in the world and in, in the global monetary system. 
So I love that. And you remind me of something I wanted to say before that some of the most valuable conversations I've had have actually been with a friend of mine who's like a full MMT proponent. And actually some mm. of the best economic conversations I've had, we don't really agree at all on the solution whatsoever. But some of his observations about the state of the problem are incredibly sharp. I actually spoke with him before coming on like yesterday uh, because we had chatted and like uh, one of the topics we had chatted about before this was like higher rates not actually combating inflation. And that's something I'd thought about for a while that intuitively made no like didn't, didn't really click for me, didn't really make sense. I think there were some obvious flaws in that. I'd read a couple papers suggesting as much. But I remembered that that was actually one of the core stances of the MMT school was that higher rates could actually be inflationary or at the very least, like, do not combat inflation. And so I reached out to my friend, uh, Timer, and uh, I was like, what is the stance? Like, why do you guys believe that? He had a great response. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and and the you know, there's a lot of, I think, value there in the assessment of how mm -hmm. the system functions. Um, we just don't align on what the solution is. Uh, but if you can't take that, if you can't interact with another human being and separate those things apart and say, okay, like we may not agree on what to do, but I can still gather value from these things you've worked on and put a lot of time and energy and thought into that you've, I feel like you've, you've assessed appropriately. You can't yeah. do that. Like you're missing out. You really are. For sure. You, I've I listened to an interview where you spoke specifically about uh, interest rates rising, not affecting or not combating inflation the way people view it or the, the traditional way that people view it. Do you have, maybe we start there that I had that set for later, but I mean, we just talked about it. We might as well get into that. And that's interesting to me because that um, does go against most of, most of the orthodoxy that yeah. people are operating with here in, in capital markets in general. Can you give us uh, some pointers or like at least lead yeah. us along? Like, let's talk about how that could potentially be the case. Uh, and maybe we'll pick that apart as we go. Absolutely. So when they raise interest rates, OK, so maybe we should articulate like what is the consensus view first? The, the, sure. the like, standard view is that as you raise interest rates, you slow down investment, right? Loans get more expensive. It's more expensive to lend. And so there's less lending. Uh, if there's less lending, then, you know, things start to slow down. If we think of inflation traditionally as like this overheated economy metaphor, things start to slow down. More of people's income has to go to debt payments rather than consumption. There's probably a bunch of other stuff, but that's the basic principle. Um, right. The reason I think it's kind of a flawed approach, um, there's, there's one whole rabbit hole of like, well, what are they doing on the fiscal level while they're raising or lowering rates? That right. completely complicates yes. it. We can get into that like after, but even if we just kind of push that aside, you have to think that when they are raising rates, the government is actually increasing payments to the private sector. This is through money market accounts. This is through bond yields. This is through all of these things where actual circulating like M2 dollars go out into the system. Um, yes. And, you know, there's a whole debate on QE and is it money printing? Is it not money printing? One of the arguments that the people make that say QE isn't money printing is that the, the dollars stay trapped inside the commercial banks and they can't they can't really leave. Now, I don't agree with that wholeheartedly, but 
when you're dealing with raising rates, those dollars are leaving Hotel California. They are going into the real economy. And so not only is it increasing government payments to the private sector, but it's it's stimmies for the wealthy. It's proof of stake in a sense. The more dollars you own that you can put into either a money market account or bonds, the more new dollars, new issuance, you get a larger share of that. So it's it's not only like a stimulus for the wealthy, um, but it's 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 taking it's literally printing money. It's literally creating new dollars through the debt issuance process and entering them into the real economy where they can be spent. So, you know, that's part hey, of wait, it. Wait, one is, quick comment to be yeah. f- to be fair too. Sorry to interrupt you, but to be fair, and I think this is one piece of nuance that I think we should interject here because I think one of one of my goals today as we talk about inflation is calling it straight instead of clean. It's not yeah. just for the wealthy. Like we have huge entitlement deficits that are g- going yeah. into perpetuity and those checks continue to go out and we can't afford those. And those are yes. going to yes. a yes. lot yes. of yes. people that are not in the ultra wealthy. So overall, I think it is directionally accurate to express that liquidity backstops, debt monetization, uh, tons of intervention in the banking sector from from the from central banks leads to asset price inflation. But it's not just that. And we can get into more of that. But that's yeah. just one quick point yeah. I wanted to throw in there. Completely. Yeah, completely agree. There's a lot of payments across the board. I mean, the system is so complex. You can never, you you know, we we can spend the entire podcast talking about this one issue if we wanted to do it, you know, in full. And that's the thing that always like we talked to uh, Carla Sari about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that's what I mean. Macro on its face is like it's fairly simple, right? You get, you know, interest rates cause this and like you kind of see these flows back and forth and then you realize like. This gets so much more complicated. Yeah. It's, it's akin to predicting the weather next yes. year. There are so many variables. Every molecule in the atmosphere has to be accounted for to accurately predict that. And there's not a supercomputer in the world capable it. of it. Exactly. Right. So it's it, we can get it directionally, maybe directionally right. But even then, yeah. you see this, you see complete surprises come out of nowhere, like the Fed bailing out SVB, yep. all of that. Not that that's very surprising when they blew up. But if you were, you know, looking at this from a, a fundamentalist point of view and you said, well, these banks are going to fail and you were right, you still got caught off sides because of that. Right. And also the the notion that we can get these directions correct is a little bit of neoclassical Keynesian propaganda, thinking that we can quantify and measure and predict all this shit back to sort of the Austrian ethos, which is. Yeah. You can't, dude. It's I yeah. mean, you can you can make bets based on sound fundamentals, but ultimately it comes down to human behavior. And yeah. I mean, I even on Bitcoin Twitter, the level of confidence and the predictability of these metrics and charts and ideas, no. I think is is a is a a tad bit of a fugazi, as we would say. Right. I do feel uh, like it would be a tad more realistic to be able to predict some of these outcomes if there were if there was no wizard behind the curtain mm. pulling strings that are that are. It may happen when you don't expect it. There's no way to predict it unless you're an insider. And they can massively overturn the way things could potentially go. Um, so absent that wizard, I believe it would have more gravitas. Uh, I don't know if you guys agree. I think I do and I don't. Uh, I think there's there's areas. So I love this conversation, first of all, um, because this has been like my primary takeaway from uh, basically the start of the rate hikes to now. So what is that like 2022 to here? 
Yeah. My biggest observation is just how wrong everybody got yes. it. Just like <laughs> exactly, um, it's everybody like we can't we, go to five percent. Everything will blow up the world. Luca, we said some embarrassing shit on this show during that period yeah, about yeah, we they did. can yeah, yeah, yeah. and can't no, do this. Uh, yeah, totally. It's, but not just like those people got it, like people saying like, no, the Fed will never be able to hike this much. Those people got it totally wrong. But also the people that were kind of on like, you know, everything's going to be fine. Everything's just going to like, like those people, like everybody was wrong. Like this has been a such a, I don't want to even say atypical because like that almost, that almost says like there is a normal course, which like, mm. again, back to your initial metaphor, I love it. It's like predicting the weather or predicting the climate like the economy is a complex system and you know when you look at predicting complex systems uh you can't like that's just you, you said something like you have to have all of the variables measured like that's the exact thing i was actually talking to alan farrington he's a math guy he's a math phd i think uh, i was i was talking with him because i'd read this article about basically climate modeling and i was just curious because there were some mathematical claims in it um, and I was like, they were talking about complex and chaotic systems and like making predictions in those mathematical circumstances. And I was like, let me know if I'm interpreting this correctly. And basically what he said to me is like, when you're dealing with these truly chaotic, truly complex systems, you need to have every measurement exactly correct at the starting point. But the problem is whenever you measure anything, whenever you measure anything, there's a degree of error. The problem with these systems is the difference between 1.1 and 1.1000001 is it goes in a completely different direction. And because you can never measure it exactly, you can never predict it because there's so much um, just unknowability in the paths mm. that they take. And this was in regards to like, obviously like natural systems, but I think it just as much applies to economies, uh, which are not just highly complex and so, so intricate, but it's the core insight of the Austrian school, which is, well, really, what is an economy? Well, it's the content of human minds expressed outward through production. Can you predict the content of all human minds? No, you can't. And so you really can't predict the economy. You may be able to make a probability adjusted bet at a certain point you may be able to like position you may also be able to intuit human preferences at some point in the future like wow there's this new idea called streaming video i know i'd really enjoy using that maybe i can assume other people would too but it's a it's an intuition it's not a calculation um there's no way to there's no there's no data set right there's no analysis you're going to run that tells you the price of Netflix stock in 2020 when you're in the year 2000. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask an inflation clarification, or I guess like summary point to get back to the, the meat and potatoes yeah. and the high level idea. A lot of what you've suggested in your writing and speaking is that people have gotten inflation wrong. People's notions of inflation, the yeah. talking points, the taglines haven't proved accurate and aren't accurate. What are yeah. what are the, the maybe the headlining myths behind the word inflation, both within yeah. and outside the Bitcoin community? Awesome. Yeah, great question. And I'm going to also just kind of these will connect. So I'm going to finish the last question, too, of the other yeah. reason higher rates may not combat inflation is because they reduce investment 
into supply. You know, they're, they're on the surface, they're saying we're going to reduce lending, but you're also reducing investing into new supply. And so if we view the cause of some inflation, and we'll get into this, as supply constraints, then raising rates is just going to fuck that all up, right? Like if there is actually supply constraints, you want more lending, not less. Um, but there's two kinds of inflation, and this gets into this point. I've, I've written at this on length. I've spoken about this. So CPI is a bogus metric in my mind in terms of if we in any way want to make the claim that it represents the true numerical state of inflation. Um, if we want to say it has some sort of utility under its own sake, fine. Um, there's many problems with it, including adjustments, including hedonic adjustments, including all of these crazy things they do. We're not going to get into that, or I'm not going to get into that right now. But um, ultimately, what it seeks to do is measure the change in the prices of goods and services. Why is bread going up or houses going up? Is hiring a contract or whatever you want to do it. Um, and 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 there's been this switcheroo where um, inflation which canonically used to mean expansion of the monetary supply was switched to be uh, a rise in price in goods and services. Now, why is that problematic? Someone might say, well, Stephen, I only really care about it insofar as it impacts the prices that I pay. Like, I don't really care about some abstract money supply if the price of bread is stable, what have you. The reason it matters is because there are basically two pathways that you can see increases in the price of consumer goods and services. One of them is good. The other one is bad. The good one is that there is a, a real world supply disruption. The actual amount of oil which is available to the market changes because of let's like let's assume a scenario that I like assume Saudi Arabia gets abducted by aliens tomorrow. We wake up tomorrow, the entire country of Saudi Arabia is in fucking space. It's gone. All of that oil's gone. Price of oil goes parabolic. We've never seen anything like it. It's trading for hundreds and hundreds the live of golf dollars. Golf tour a goes under. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew Pines vindicated. He does a <laughs> he does a you know celebration tour. The aliens are here. Anyways, CPI in the U.S. goes to 20%, right? Everything's just completely foobar. Um, should we hike rates and depress lending to combat that inflation? No, it's not a monetary phenomena. It's a, there's not enough oil, stupid. Like, there's not yeah. enough oil. You need to go give a bunch of money to oil companies to go pump more fucking oil. That's the only way you solve it. That price mm -hmm. increasing from oil is a signal. It's information. That's a data point to the market, to entrepreneurs, to companies that say, hey, guys, there is a financial incentive here for you to increase production now. If you can get more oil to the market, we'll pay handsomely for it. Come do your job, you know, companies. Like that's the whole function of an economy. And so not only is that a accurate inflation. That's a good signal. You don't want to distort it. You don't want to try to artificially suppress the price of oil. What happens if you do it? Well, people don't produce more and you're still in the same situation. I fear that's what we've done recently, right? Mm -hmm. We had this spike in oil and the response was all like, 
let's engineer the price down. Let's short the futures. Let's release the SBR. Let's do all these things. Like, well, if there's actually a shortage of supply, there's only one solution, and that's more oil or an oil substitute. Um, so anyway, so that's one kind of inflation, which is effectively real. It is not coordinated by a central entity, and it has no monetary origin. And then there's another kind of inflation, which, you know, another way you could get to 20% CPI in America is, uh, you know, $5,000 a month stimulus checks to every man, woman and child every month. You know, we, we just start sending money. Well, you're going to also see the price of oil go up to hundreds of dollars a barrel in that scenario right. over time. But it's a completely different signal. And the problem is, if you're an entrepreneur and you're a business operator, how do you know which one it is? How do you know if it is a fundamental economic reality or it is a monetary distortion? Because if you start expanding your supply massively into that monetary distortion scenario, you see the price of oils, $300 a barrel, but demand is exactly the same, then you you die as a business because there is not adequate demand to, to, to meet that new production. Um, right. So I may all pause there for a sec. Well, if as a business owner, you're looking at this and the only objective way to, to take action based on that is the price of oil. Yeah. So you're going to do what is sensical for you, which is deploy more capital, yep. deploy more people, expand your company, go drill more wells, do whatever it is you do to acquire more oil. And if you try to take the, the economist point of view and try to say, Hmm, is this monetary or is this a real oil shortage here and you're playing that game, either A, going to get surpassed by your competition yeah. or B, you're going to blow up and go out of business. Yeah. So you, you can't really play that game. You have to just take the objective price signal and that's all you have. And in one scenario, you could be totally fucked by that. And it's an inefficiency, right? So if we view the economy as this information aggregating almost like transpersonal machine. It is this like emergent way that all of the humans parse information between each other using price as kind of the ones and zeros. Um, then what we've done in the inflation scenario is we've distorted the quality of information that's being fed into the computer, right? It's like mm. we're giving bad information. All of our measurements are off by 10%. And so the efficiency of the entire system becomes impaired. The economy starts being suboptimal. We're not making as good decisions. Maybe demand accounts for 80% of the price increase in oil, but 20% of it is sheer monetary shenanigans. And so, right. you know, we're making decisions where we're investing capital, we're deploying people, and but it just doesn't work as well as it could. And it's because those price signals aren't tight. It's because there's noise in the data feed. I'm probably going to steal your own punchline here. But to summarize, I I'm going to steal your own punchline because I'm regurgitating your own work. So let me clarify that directly. Um, what you're communicating so wonderfully is essentially that CPI tells you whether a basket of goods is going up or down in price. Now, I want to start by saying we Bitcoiners tend to use CPI when it's in the favor of our narrative, and we reject it when it doesn't help or bolster our narrative. 
I think although CPI is wildly imperfect, and as you alluded to earlier, we could get into hedonic adjustments and what's in the basket. And I understand that that housing and, and healthcare and education are going up way faster than, than consumables. I get all that. I am expressing, though, that I think it is directionally correct. I think it is a helpful, directionally correct metric. However, it is yeah. very limiting in telling you why, which is what you're communicating. Is CPI going up because of real things being in short supply, real world shit being affected, oil in the example you gave, or is it going up because of inflating an abstract monetary phenomena, not a fake or irrelevant phenomena, but an abstract monetary phenomena? Bitcoin, as you expressed in your piece, which we'll link in the notes, is an abstract monetary phenomena. Yes, it maps on to real world goods in a very powerful, helpful, empowering way but it is an abstract monetary phenomena. So if you're expecting CPI going up as a result of supply side dynamics, bolstering your abstract monetary phenomena, it is not going to work that way. And so I think yeah. this is what I love about your distinctions is you're mapping on why is, why is CPI going up? Is it because of the real world implications of supply choke points or is it because of more units of currency being printed? And if you're, in the former scenario, and you're expecting to go Bitcoin to go through the roof when when oil supply is constrained, you just don't understand the plumbing behind the dynamics. Is that a fair articulation of kind of the high level message, or add any any nuance or follow up there? Absolutely, no. I mean, and that is the core argument. And I wrote that piece at a time where CPI was printing seven percent. And Bitcoin was trending down and everyone was like, oh, see, Bitcoin doesn't hedge inflation at all. And I wanted to articulate this point because I felt it's misunderstood. And I think you summarized that well. There's even another point you can make is that CPI is a lagging indicator. And like Mm. you said, directionally correct. I would agree it's directionally correct. It's the actual number is meaningless except in self-reference to itself. Like, is CPI higher or lower than CPI? Okay, that tells you something. Uh, it just isn't measuring the real world in any capacity, but it's measuring itself and that that's not useless. Um, but CPI is a lagging indicator and markets are forward looking. I had a tweet actually um, maybe a month or two ago where I, I mapped CPI against the Bitcoin price and I forward shifted CPI nine months and it was an exact match. Like for a while, not, not just during COVID, but like if you, it, CPI just nine months or Bitcoin price nine months ahead of CPI. And so you bring CPI forward and it, it lines up. So you even could you even could make the argument that Bitcoin did track CPI. It's just like the market knew they were printing a bunch of money in 2020. If you bought Bitcoin, then you bought Bitcoin at eight thousand dollars and you hedged your goddamn inflation. Like that's just what happened. Mm. Um and, you know, same thing with gold, right? People commonly accept the gold's an inflation hedge and gold front ran the whole thing and Bitcoin front ran the whole thing. Um, that's how it's functioned. But but yeah, it's it's if you're buying Bitcoin just because you think if you think CPI is going up because there are structural supply chain issues, not a good reason to buy Bitcoin based solely on that. That's not a you don't really have a thesis there. Yeah. To simplify your piece in the context of how Bitcoin interacts, you had a good little um, blurb, which I want to go through here really quick, which was when the Fed engages in QE, Bitcoin generally goes up. 
when they when the Fed tightens, Bitcoin goes down. When the government engages in fiscal spending via stimulus checks, Bitcoin goes up. When the government reduces fiscal spending, Bitcoin goes down. When assets go up, expanding the money supply, Bitcoin goes up. And when assets fall sharply, contracting the money supply, Bitcoin goes down. So that is basically the summary of Bitcoin's reaction to any and all of these different maneuvers the Fed and the government seem to take. Yeah. In in the past, too, we have to quantify that. Like, like because yeah. I think that Bitcoin is such a complex, emergent, nascent phenomena that it is helpful to have these conversations. And that's a lot of what we're doing on this show is unpacking how Bitcoin's progressing. But we are looking in the past and Bitcoin has the potential to do a large number of things we haven't even envisioned yet. So Absolutely. we can say it's performed this way in the past. It's designed to likely do that in the future. But I also think there can be some some dangers to clinging too firmly to one selling 100%. point or idea. And so yeah. to say Bitcoin, yeah. even, even in this scenario where we're saying Bitcoin is a hedge against monetary inflation, let's say to summarize it. Yeah, that's been true. And it seems likely that'll be in, so in the future, but there probably will be a case or an instance or a period where that thesis is violated. And so that's where I Absolutely. think you have to you have to map Bitcoin onto a more holistic picture for newcomers. You had to start somewhere, but then expand and explain mm. this thing does a lot of different shit. Yeah. Here's an example of where that would break. Uh, here's a way that could break. So money supply contracts, right? They're contracting through any of these channels. Let's say the money supply is just contracting. But for whatever reason, there's some phenomena which occurs where 20% of the human population suddenly understands Bitcoin and puts 10% mm -hmm. of their net worth into Bitcoin. Price of Bitcoin goes parabolic. Adoption can trump money supply dynamics, right? Um, so there's a million ways this could break, but all else equal, that's how I would expect Bitcoin to perform. But adoption can override that. Bitcoin's still a tiny, tiny asset. I, yeah. I, I personally believe that the number of people who not only own Bitcoin, but have like, let's call it over 10% of their net worth, like it's a material asset to them. It's not just like they have a hundred bucks of Bitcoin on Coinbase or they have 5,000 bucks of Bitcoin and they're worth a million dollars or whatever it is, but they have five to 10% of their net worth in it. I would wager it's under 200,000 people globally. Um, I really don't think it's a lot. It's, and, you know, assuming, let's just assume their net worth is over $50,000, right? Um, yeah. Which, you know, makes it kind of Western centric, but like, let's just assume the person's worth over $50,000 and they have at least 10% of their net worth in Bitcoin. I think that number is incredibly small relative to the global population. I think Bitcoin's a tiny asset. I think, yeah, there's a lot of addresses. Yeah, Cash App, Robinhood have a bunch of users that own Bitcoin. But I think the number of people who treat it as a serious portfolio asset that they're like, okay, I'm storing my wealth. I'm constructing my financial plan. Okay, I own my home. I have some equities just as diversification. I've got my Bitcoin part of my portfolio. That's a small number of people. If that number of people goes up, so does the price, all else be damned. For sure. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Before we get off the top of talking about macro in general, I just want to make a comment about this because I think a lot of people have this worry in the back of their head. I don't think it's realistic in the in the near term, but these actions that central banks take, talking about how these things don't exactly map one-to-one -one back onto the economy. There's a lot of dislocations that happen. There's a lot of 
And I think the extreme example of how that could work out very negatively is the Soviet Union back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, they had shortages of everything because they had a command control economy where bureaucrats would make decisions about how everything was produced and what and where. And there's no way that those people could have enough information intake and have the correct actions taken uh, after receiving that information to properly allocate resources. So my worry over the long term, and I'm talking like 20, 30 years, if we keep allowing these Band-Aid fixes, eventually it, it seems like it has to turn into more of a command control economy because politicians never relinquish power. They always reach for more. Yeah. And that's the real long-term worry because these dislocations mostly are political. And these bureaucracies that try to take more and more power on board without the ability to make the kind of dynamic, quick changes that the market can make because they have skin in the game. That's the worry I think a lot of people have over the longer term um, versus just these ups and downs we see in the market. It seems inevitable that things trend in that direction unless we have a big catalyst for change. I think we're already there, to be honest, like maybe not full tilt, like we're not in a full tilt command control economy. And and I don't know that we're going to be in the Soviet sense of the word, like it's going to look different, but if it happens, but I kind of feel like we already inhabit that where like in part, in part, we're partially there. Like finance has been so captured. It's such a tool of government wielded via regulation. I mean, public companies effectively come under the domain of government uh, the moment they're public. Uh financial capital pools like the big investment firms, Vanguard, BlackRock. I mean, how many discussions have there been about like them not being like purely economic actors, but investing capital and directing capital based on, uh, I guess what you'd call like ideological grounds or regulatory grounds. So to, to whatever degree, I won't put a number on that. But if we were to sum up the total amount of economic decision making, and then we were to guess a percent, what percent of that is effectively downstream of government regulation, government policy, or like subtle behind the scenes ideological capture? Well, that's the percent of a command and control economy we currently live in. Um, mm. I would say it's at least 20%. I mm. would say all of the financial side of it. Yeah. But not so much of the, I mean, I'm sure there could be arguments made for the other side of it as well, but I think where they stay relatively hands off is the supply side. Like there's no government agency really stepping in besides like saying you're not allowed to drill for oil yeah. in specific places. They're not trying to dictate you're only producing 10,000 barrels of oil in this year. You're doing this X, Y amount of, because that I think has, I mean, it's kind of like the argument versus the monetary little, side versus this, the supply side. They, they do that in certain, like, I agree. There's not like a, like quota, like it's not going to look like the Soviet system. We don't have the Soviet system, but, uh, think about how many energy restrictions and policies, who gets the loans, who gets the capital, who gets taxed through those channels. You know, it's obvious that I'm not making yeah. any comments one way or the other, but the the government has chosen solar and wind as their preferred energy source. They have made it very difficult to. When's the last time we built an oil refinery? Long time ago. Like th it that is interfering in production. Is is my like they are effectively staying yeah. through. I would agree with you on that. Yeah, and again, this isn't me making whatever stance. Uh, some people might think I'm making. I'm just pointing out that 
they are influencing the realities of production through regulation and tax incentives. And and dudes, I would I would say that the more command and control the economy becomes, the more complex and obfuscated it becomes. In one sense, high level things are more predictable than ever. When you are in this dire of a debt environment and the fiscal situation is this fucked up. We know that there are only a couple eventualities of how this could unwind and none of them are fully pleasant and somebody gets really screwed over in all of these. But that's more of like a 5, 10, 15, 20 year assessment. On the short term, things are squirrely. It's really hard to decide what they're going to do next. Banking crisis this week, emergency meeting on Sunday, BTFPs here. There is when you're backstopping liquidity to this extent and when fiscal and monetary policy are this blended as they now are because of the debt environment, it is going to be hard to predict what's next. You can live in a world where rates are through the roof and they step in with a new program domestically or they start swap lines internationally. There's so many different tricks that can be played and tricks that haven't even been tried on stage yet that we're not even aware of. And so the, the statement I make there. I say that to the general public and myself, because we are not analyzing this stuff for 40 hours a week. We are going to live in a world where they're going to, it's going to be a bit of a shell game and things may appear one way, but be a different way behind the surface. And this is why for me, my growing conviction and the way I distill and simplify this a lot in my head is the reason leverage and credit are so out of control is because they are never allowed to unwind. I've talked about this piece a lot, but Lavish published a Fed put piece a while ago that was just so good. And his main point or thesis or one of the thrusts was, if you never let the fires burn, as we say in Bitcoin, never let the fires burn, you're going to get a rampant inferno. And so, yes, you'll have events where things deleverage and you'll have credit crunches and this sort of things, but there is always a net underneath. And when that net is always there, the trapeze artist takes more and more risk. And when you add that up, you get into environments like we are in today, of which there is no long-term escape, but short-term, lots of tricks that can be played that are going to be hard to parse through on a month-to-month basis. 100%. 100%. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the buildup of credit, the buildup of leverage is, a, a an inevitability of the current structure, and two, just a disaster. Um And you can <laughs> also look at that as a further extension of the way, like, That's also in some ways like command and control economy vibes. Like you can make the argument that like the way in which leverage and credit is effectively supported and subsidized and it's not a natural functioning is what I'm saying. It may not resemble like a Soviet model. It may not resemble like the Politburo, but it is not a natural market functioning. It is an artificial market functioning based on dictates from central authorities it, it, it's it has a little bit more rope it has a little bit more illusion of freedom but if we look at that do we say that is a free and open market operating it's not it's not at all it is um and and the distortions are tremendous i mean one of the one of the sins i think of uh propping up kind of credit in this way is um well, it's, it's capital misallocation, right? Like I, I've I've made the, you know, the, the the people arguing in favor of fiat will always argue that you need um, 
you need inflationary money or no one will invest, right? Like that's the stance. Like if you don't have an expanding money supply, then people won't invest. I've made the argument. And so like full reserve doesn't work. Like full reserve banking doesn't work. I've made the argument like, what is a, a venture capital fund if not a fully reserved investment bank? They cannot print money. They do not have access to money from thin air. They cannot extend their own kind of credit in the same way. They have a fixed amount of capital that they must choose who to invest in to produce returns for shareholders. That is like, like it is in essence a fully reserved investment bank. Now, who has created more value for the US economy in terms of innovation, in terms of startups? Is it venture capital funds or is it commercial banks? How many startups do you know which were funded from a loan from commercial banks? I actually ran this poll on Twitter and it was like 10%. 90% of the investment capital going into actual innovation comes from fully reserved lenders. And you know, and interesting. You know, and 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 so tying back to your point, I know I went a little off topic there, but like, why is that? Well, it's because if you have, let's say, you have a hundred million dollars that you need to invest in growth and you need to produce returns and do something for the economy, you need to be extremely selective about who you give that to. If you give it to Adam Newman, you're fucked unless you sell out in the next VC round. Like you're screwed. <laughs> um, but if you run a kind of commercial bank whose like only function is just lend money into the economy, don't worry, we get backstop, lend money, lend money. You don't care if you lend money to Theranos. You don't care if you lend money to Adam Newman. You don't really give a shit at all about what the actual outcome of your investment is. In fact, you get paid 7% interest whether that company does well or does poorly because it's debt financing. It's not equity financing. You know, you're not taking, you have no skin in the game. And so, you know, when I look at just like nothing, not that like venture capital isn't in some ways subsidized by these same metrics, but on paper, this model of you have a fixed amount of capital that you raised from stakeholders and you take equity stakes in companies. If they do well, you do well. If they do bad, you do bad. That is a cleaner model in my head. And coincidentally, it happens to be responsible for most of the innovation in this country. Wow. That is very succinctly put. I never really thought about it in that way, but you're absolutely right. Those fully reserved venture capital funds are the ones that are backing every single new tech upstart in San Francisco. Yeah. Everything that's been a big deal in the last 20 or 30 years has been directly funded by those guys. And they catch a lot of shit and deservedly. Sure. So sure. some of them are sure. investing in a bunch of sure. shit coin scams and all of that. But if you, you know, pull that back and you, and you took a look, take a more holistic view of it, those companies are doing some some seriously great work for the world and they make a ton of money and they deserve to for taking the kind of risks they're taking on these unicorn companies. Yeah. Um, your day job is to talk to people, not necessarily venture capitalists, but people that are high net worth individuals. I want to know what are the what are some of the questions that these people come to you with when they're deciding, should I be buying Bitcoin? How much should I allocate? Like what are their yep. what are their mainline questions that you have to dispel or or issues or FUD or anything like that? What is the typical question deck from those types of individuals? So great question. The answer to that question is very different depending on if I talk about 2021 or 2023. Mm -hmm. Um in 2021, a lot of the conversations I was having were about Bitcoin. Like, 
What's with the energy use? Why can't the government, why isn't the government going to ban it? What would this or that, like, you know, just Bitcoin questions. In 2023, mm -hmm. I'm not having those conversations anymore. Um, the, the conversations I'm having are how do I buy, like operationally, how do I invest in Bitcoin in a trust, in my personal account? Do I custody it myself? Do I use a custodian? Like, you know, what, what sort of allocation, like, what am I doing here? How do I do? Why should I trust Swan? Who should I go to? Um, and so that's an interesting breakdown on surface value, because in 2021, I think you had a lot of new people that had just kind of come to Bitcoin. They were interested, but they still needed to be sold on Bitcoin. They still needed to have Bitcoin explained to them. In 2023, right? Like it's not a bull market. Well, you know, it, it's 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 there's not a lot of hype going on. And right. so the people that are coming in the door now and like volumes are good. It's not it's not anemic in any capacity. We're having a lot of calls. Um but they already kind of get Bitcoin. Increasingly, the people I'm talking to, um, I literally had a call the other day with like a, uh, like a fam, like kind of the uh, representative for a family that's owned businesses in New York City since the 1800s, like a long-standing family op, real estate and production and all sorts of stuff. And he literally opened the call up with like, "Look, you don't need to sell me Bitcoin. I've already sold on Bitcoin." I want to talk about, I have a trust. How do we do this? Yeah. Um, and so it's more like that recently. Not always, of course, but it's more people that are like, look, I already kind of am on board to buy this thing, but uh, why should I do business with you and how do I do it? Whereas, and so that might change again. Maybe when there's another hype cycle, we go back more to the like, I'm explaining yeah. how consensus works, how energy production works, how all of that. But uh, right now, it's a lot of people that seem to have more conviction just trying to figure out like operationally how to do it. You you took the words right out of my mouth there a second ago. I was gonna I was gonna highlight the cyclicality of the types of questions yeah. that you get as a Bitcoiner. In a bull run, yeah. you get the basic questions. Then in a bear market, you get the more dense, complex, thoughtful questions because the people that are DMing you are probably here for more legitimate reasons. But then when the bull starts again, all the basic questions start. You know, we've only we, we got in in 2017, so we've only lived through this once. But I'm sure yeah. you would agree that we would all agree that when things kicked off again in this last bull run, I had been on record for a couple of years as being into Bitcoin, and my phone started to get, you know, yeah. I got messages with some really basic questions. And I just my my point there, the takeaway is be ready to do those again. Be ready yeah. to answer those questions again. The last episode we recorded was with Daz and Seb from Looking Glass Education as part of our basic series. And we just went through Bitcoin FUD. That yeah. might be old hat to you, yep. but it's worth revisiting these things because these questions are going to emerge again, doubling back to your statement earlier, Steve, of how early we are. We're so freaking yep. early. The number of people that actually understand this is still startlingly low. Yes. I'm always so like I run private for Swan. I run private client. I'm always telling my team. These are other people that are talking to private clients. Uh, I'm always telling them because we started private. Uh, I came on to launch private um, and that was basically the start of 2021. And almost everybody on the private team today didn't join until the end of 21, 22. So they weren't really here for like the bull market part of it. 
And I'm always telling these guys, like, all the habits you've built, everything you've learned, the way you do this, it's all going to change when the market mm. changes. You need to be ready that, like, you've built up a set of skills in this one market condition, but this is all you've ever seen. Like, I've seen it in both ways, and I'm telling you it'll be very different. So just, just a note on that, it's like, it's something we talk about frequently. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it's also... I forget who's, I think it was on McCormick. I remember you saying something about last cycle, there were more people when we got down into the doldrums of the bear that really had, I think you used the term existential crisis in Bitcoin. Now, and then you, I think you went on yes. to say, you've seen less of that. And I agree, I've seen less of it. I think Bitcoin is far more established. It's far more mainstream. And I think on a risk adjusted basis, it's a much better investment than it was in 2018 personally risk adjusted so i've onboarded like thousands of clients high net worth clients since 21. the number of calls i have gotten to panic sell is under 10. even at 15k people that bought at 50 people that bought at 60 people that bought at 45 large amounts like large amounts the number of calls I got from people during the crashes to panic sell, I mean, it, it was under 10 calls, period. And, uh, you know, I think part of it, we do a little bit better job of education than Coinbase. Yeah. We're, ac we're actually talking yep. to somebody. We're educating it. I, I definitely got calls of like, hey, uh, tell me why I shouldn't be worried, like kind of more calm, just like can you still feel good about it. But um, but it speaks to that point that like I remember. 2018 and uh and and that was my first bear market so you know part of it's that but just at that time i remember the dialogue being like is this thing even gonna work is this is right. this is this real um more so whereas now i just feel like myself but also these newer people that weren't in before they seem to just think like oh yeah we just gotta wait it out right that 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 does surprise me when you get calls from these high net worth clients and you're dealing with them, do they generally lump sum buy or do they give you an allocated amount of money and ask you to buy it over a period of time? Or is there a decent split between that? I'm just curious how those individuals approach their purchase. Honestly, it's mostly lump sum. And we've done some analysis on it. And I mean, if you have a lump sum, statistically lump sum investing will outperform. Um, DCA, like we're obviously like, a DCA platform and we champion it, but it's for people with cash flows. It's like you have a salary, you have rental income, you have a cash flow. So just automate it. Savings like DCA is great for continued ongoing savings. But if you have a lump of capital, unless like, you know, statistically, like we've run this and you can run it yourself, I think on NakamotoPortfolio.com, which is an analytics tool we put out. Uh, lump sum will generally outperform over the long run. And and that's not like, I'm usually not, I'm not pounding that message to all these people and that's why they do lump sum, but they just generally come in. They're like, it's an allocation for them. Like that's the other way to think of it is like, they're making an allocation. It's not cash flows. It's not savings. They're worth a lot of money. They're saying, Hey, I'm worth $10 million. I'd like to have a 10% allocation in Bitcoin. Let's get that allocation. Sometimes it's like, we'll buy half of it and we'll DCA the rest over two to three months. There's definitely a number of people I've done and even recommended. I remember around the like 
FTX, like the real kind of nasty parts of the bear market, I was recommending people just set up a two to three month DCA, like just 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 like do it like short, like it's not this like long stretched out thing, but you just you just don't know. Like Genesis was still maybe going to go under, maybe not going to go under. And I mean, that worked out really well for those people. I mean, they got a great entry price and they didn't have the like emotional volatility of like, okay, all in at 21. Holy shit, we're at 15. What is in dealing with high net worth folks, family offices and, and all this stuff that, that you, the water you swim in, what's the biggest difference, uh, or motivation of that, that subset of people that varies from like the average pleb on Twitter? Like what, what's a takeaway from your, from, from the people you interact with? You're like, this is how they think differently, or this is, they're interested in this thing that other people aren't. Does anything come to mind on that front? I don't know that the interests are really all that different. I think they have similar concerns, similar interests, monetary debasement, inflation, out of control, government policy, spending, etc. Uh, I think they have relatively similar theses to what we see on Bitcoin Twitter. Bitcoin's the hardest money. It's going to succeed like, we, you know, or it's, it's highly probable to succeed. Uh, I want to get an allocation to this, um, you know storing money for generations like you know i want something to give to my kids i'm tired of uh moonlighting as a hedge fund manager you know uh that was one of the conversations i had last night of like you know you're a dentist well okay you're a hedge fund manager and you're off time um so I, i think that's that's similar um but maybe something interesting i could say of like a difference they are they're much more discerning but I mean that in a very specific way. I'm not saying that uh, your average pleb on Bitcoin Twitter is undiscerning. But what I mean is like they're evaluating not just Bitcoin and not just Swan as like a set of things you could write down on a deck. Like, okay, Swan has this many employees and this is how they're structured. They're evaluating you as a person. It is infinitely more of a relationship thing than anything else. I'm constantly telling the team this, like what we're doing here is I need you to show up and I need you to be honest. I need you to not do any fucking bullshit sales tactics. Like that's completely unacceptable. Like it's not, we're not, we're not doing that. That's not how this works. Like you're showing up and you're meeting this person. Treat them like a friend, treat them like you're their fiduciary that you're, you're working, like you're really working for them. You're not working for me. Like if it's in their best interest not to buy any Bitcoin for some reason, they're like an 85 year old retired couple that has to sell 10% of their IRA every month or something like that. Like tell them that, like, do not, don't like, yeah, I get it's good for you. It's good for Swan if we sell Bitcoin, but give them authentic, like build trust. Like, and that's what these people are they're looking for, they're watching, they're evaluating. Like when you're someone with wealth, uh, you go through your life every day where how many people you meet are just trying to get something out of you. How many people you mm-hmm. meet just like want your money, that want your power, that want your like they know how to detect that with a microscope. Like if you're inauthentic, if you're not congruent, if what you say and what you feel and what you do doesn't match up, it's an enormous red flag for these people and they're gone. Um, you can't, you can't bullshit. Um, and I think that's the biggest difference is like the, the, the process is almost like 
not about Bitcoin in some ways. It's about like being the person they want to trust to do business with. And that's something that maybe, you know, in, in Bitcoin, like we talk so much about trustlessness of like, you know, we're building this trustless monetary system. And yet in the human domain, in the domain of like, you're never going to have a world where every single economic interaction is governed by a protocol and not by people. Like, trust is how we navigate things. Absolutely. I'm wondering, with um, with the Grayscale win just yesterday, are you getting questions from these clients about this potential ETF coming up? Are they kind of riding the fence at all, thinking maybe I don't want a custody to this, maybe I want this in my brokerage account when this ETF ever does come to fruition? Is that a conversation that you have with these people? And are they pretty apprehensive about taking custody themselves? So definitely lots of conversations around the ETF ever since the BlackRock news. So definitely something they're thinking about. They're watching very closely, buying ac buying activity. I don't think most of them, I'm not getting a lot of people that are like, oh, I'd rather own ETF shares. Um, few reasons there. One is they're just there's an expense ratio. It's just simply going to be more expensive. You're going to pay 25 bips, 50 bips a year. And if you think Bitcoin goes exponential, right? Like 50 bips of Bitcoin up 10x is 5% of your initial investment per year. Yeah. Whereas you could buy Bitcoin on Swan and you're only paying on the dollars you put in in the start, right? So even at low expense ratios, there is an exponentially growing cost, especially if you think Bitcoin. So it is a more expensive vehicle, hands down, will never not be the case. Um, but I, a lot of them also, they want to they wanna either take self-custody of the coins or they want to know that they could if they needed to. And those are two different points. Um, Swan has one of the best self-custody, um, like how many people withdraw assets from the platform? I, I, think in, like, I, I think it's the best, but you know, it's definitely one of the best in the industry. Um, it's, it's quite high for the high net worth demographic. It's slightly lower. So for wealthy clients, they're a little less likely to take self custody. Part of that is just, they're investing much larger amounts and there's a, there's a bigger process of education. So what we do a lot of is, um, saying, Hey, like get your allocation. You can get your allocation now, even if you don't feel comfortable doing self custody today, you can get exposure. And then we'll work with you over the next six months to get you feeling bulletproof so that you can take self-custody of those assets when and if you want to. Um, and that's kind of kind of how it goes. It's slightly less. One thing I wanted to pick your brain on is you have said before that you could envision a future where Bitcoin is successful, which I think we could argue it, it already has been, but it's not the dominant monetary paradigm, I think is how you've put it. So Bitcoin yeah. carves out a fairly large space. It has noticeable utility, but it's not, it doesn't underpin the global monetary system the way many Bitcoiners think it yeah. inevitably will. And we're, we're sort of allergic to the word inevitable here at BCB. And I think I agree that yeah. that is a potential outcome. I just like would like you to hear, uh, hear you elaborate more on your thoughts behind that. Yeah. Awesome. No. And I think that it's a, it's a very real pathway. Like 
it, it Bitcoin isn't this binary outcome where it either fails or like consumes all money to zero. In fact, there are some challenging um, game theory to a all Bitcoin world, mainly that if a let's say everyone's on a Bitcoin standard, everyone's on a hard money standard, and then China says, nope, we're going back to fiat and we're going to print money to fund a giant military expansion and we're going to invade you guys. That's a that's a hell of an incentive, right? There's a there's an incentive for a state, a rogue state to go back to fiat, right? How do we navigate that? I don't have the answer, um, but there's 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 challenges. Um, not saying it won't happen. And it, it's one of those things that I don't think is like predictable. Right. So there may be a great answer to that question that I just can't envision in this moment. And that's what happens. But. I think there's a pathway where Bitcoin becomes like a global reserve asset for the world. So you could think of this, you know, in a simple way, like, uh, you know, the bank core gold, like these kind of reserve assets at points in monetary history where uh, there was fiat currencies that were either backed by or built on a credit layer on top of a kind of neutral reserve asset that has this interesting balancing effect where it does constrain the reckless expansion of fiat currency because your currency will hyper inflate against this yes easily functionable monetary medium. And so it does rein stuff in, but it doesn't function as like the primary monetary base. I see that as a possibility. I mean, I see that as something which could certainly happen. Like governments still have their fiats, but their fiats are relatively contained by their their price against Bitcoin. And so maybe people in those countries they're willing to tolerate 1% inflation a year. It gets spent on public infrastructure. It funds uh, national defense, which they agree is important. And they're willing to tolerate uh, you know, 1%. But if that government goes crazy and goes to 10%, it's like there's an escape hatch. And this is actually consistent with monetary history. So when you look at the metallic standard of money prior to the fiat regime, you, you encounter this notion of an inside and an outside option. And so basically, like, let's say you're in England, right? And there's this really interesting phenomena that I think most people aren't familiar with, that how were most of the gold coins actually created in the European monarchies and states? Well, actually, it was with gold from traders. It was traders accruing economic surpluses in China, in other countries, bringing the raw gold to England and then going to the Royal Mint and having it stamped into coins. The actual monetary supply was economically generated from trade. And so why would the trader go to the mint to stamp the coins? Why wouldn't they just spend the gold? Well, because once it had the king's crest on it, it had a slight premium. It was worth slightly more. And so the trader takes the gold to the mint. It gets stamped out with the king's face. It gets a slight political premium within the kingdom. They pay a fee to the royal mint and it's like, you know, net positive for the trader. But what happens if that king goes crazy and the country's collapsing? Well, you can always take your politically stamped gold coins, go melt right. them down and go to France. And so you have an outside option. You can always take it into a money which is not politically uh, designated and you can flee or if 
the politics is going all right and the kingdom's stable, well, you get a little bit of a premium operating within the political structure. And so if we did go to this world where Bitcoin's kind of this outside option for money, um, which underpins and is behind uh, like some sort of variation of a, of a fiat standard, well, that would actually be kind of consistent with monetary history. That has existed before in different forms. Mm, yeah, I, I, I think this is a very plausible scenario. I mean, I, I view at the very least Bitcoin likely becoming a bit of a monetary chaperone, as you've said. Right now, all the, the fiat policymakers are playing in the sandbox. They're pissing and shitting wherever they want. They're slapping each other. Things are getting out of control. And chaperone has kind of entered the backyard. They're still playing in the sandbox. Same trucks are still there. Same kids are still there. But if you do you know, piss on the kid next to you, you get taken out back and everybody hears the spanking. And then everybody tightens up and things are more orderly. That, yeah. That's sort of how I envision that's a, a, a... That's a sound clip I'm going to use. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's how I envision a uh, slightly to dramatically harder money future. I envision a harder money future. I think we're sort of peak soft money. And I think we're yes. moving yes. towards harder money. And as whether it's gold, Bitcoin, whatever, kind of enters the fray as an, a new escape valve and, and that chaperone, you're going to see yeah. people get maimed and harmed in ways they haven't before, disciplined, and lessons will be learned. But I don't know. Yeah, I think I, that's very different than saying every single coffee purchased in the year 2040 is going to be in sats. That could be the case, but I don't think it's definitely going to yeah. happen or even, even but, a likely scenario. Yeah. The scenario I laid out is, let's, I'm going to call that the my most, I, I'll say the scenario I laid out is my most probable scenario. That is the, that, that scenario has the least like challenges, I think, to overcome. Um, and then there's, I think there's another, let's say, I think 60% of the outcome is something like what I just described. And then maybe 30%, 25%. Is like a more like everything's Bitcoin. I don't really know how that works. I'm not willing to discount it that hard on a long enough time horizon, hundred years, yeah. right? It's too like I think there's a meaningful probability of that. But my base case, and certainly like path dependency, we pass through what I just described on the way to hyper Bitcoinization. We're mm. there first. I think there's. I would place an under 5% probability that we get to hyper Bitcoinization without spending some time in what I just laid out. Well said. How do you envision, it's, it seems to me, I mean, we lived through the 2018, 2019 downturn and then in 2020, that gut wrenching $3,000 or roughly when, when March, 2020 hit and, and COVID just butt fucked everything. I feel like we are probably in like that mid to late 2019 phase right now where everything's kind of in the doldrums, everything kind of feels boring. You can see it on Twitter yep. or X. You can see that people are just kind of looking for something to entertain themselves or they've already pieced out, punched out of this entire thing. And they're worried about AI and aliens at this point, yeah. which we did, you know, get diverted on for an episode or two, which is fun. But where do you see this thing going by the end of next year? Do you think this looks like a probable another four year relapse of this beginning of a bull run. Do you think things could be a little different in the monetary uh, waters we're swimming in right now? How do you take your best stab at what yeah. you think might be in the crystal ball for the next year? 
year and a half. No, so I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, I've just been posting about the sun for the last two months because everything is so... <laughs> we didn't get to that yet, did no, we? No, 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 well, everything's just there. been boring. What's... I mean, it's been a little boring. I have nothing really to say new about Bitcoin. That's the truth of it. Like, it's a, it's a summer doldrums. And so, I don't know. I have other interests. I post about those. But um, I, I, I'm on record somewhere. I don't know if it's Cafe Bitcoin or somewhere, but I'm on record somewhere. When we started pumping from the bottom and we had that really great like SVB bank failure pump, I was on record saying this is 2019. This is the Facebook is doing Libra pump where we went to 13K in 2019. Mm, I was in May, I think, of 20. I remember really I remember well it. that couple of days. It was crazy. I felt euphoric. I remember it very clearly because it was like yep. I was really hyped up. But I was, on, I, yeah, I was on record during the SVB stuff saying, I think this is the equivalent of the Libra pump in 2019. It will sell off after, um, but it's not going back to 15K. And I think the real thing starts after. Um, again, like we're, I think we're all on the same page. We both, you know, make probabilistic statements. I'm in no way saying that's 100% certainty, but right. that's how I've related to it. I think next year is good. I, I think. I think we end the year higher than here, and I think we end 2024 significantly higher than here. That's that's my mm. basic. I, within that, I don't know, but uh, yeah, yeah. Speaking of sun, I, I was expecting him to be in the middle of a hurricane, Josh. We were going to say this off the start. I, I feel swindled. I feel duped. It, it looks yeah, that's a pretty yeah. tame hurricane in, in you your backyard going on there. or wherever you are. Some hurricane. Yeah, Idalia came through last night, but we're fortunate enough. It was like midnight like whipping winds i thought we might have more but uh i was gonna i was gonna i was all prepared to film this episode with the hurricane behind me it was gonna be so cool i was like so yeah. ready for it I, i'm kind of rubbed too yeah and you and you missed out on the opportunity for a new roof and some new siding too you know like that's yeah. always a plus oh, a hurricane yeah. rolls through you get some get a new color in your house <laughs> josh and i are deep into that scam yeah, by bonus. the way i got i got the entire exterior of my house and uh josh is calling the same guy we got we got a guy um, yeah. And I, you know what, we'll see, if, we'll see how he performs at my house. Yeah, we do it. Regardless of what the weather was going to be, we expected you to show up. There are very few excuses, Josh, not to make your appointment to the blue collar Bitcoin podcast, maybe like immediate family member passing away or, you know, maybe. brand new diagnosis of some crazy disease or whatever, but the very <laughs> few and hurricane definitely didn't meet that list. So we expected you here, you yeah. showed up and the sun is shining. Yeah, you showed up and you performed really yeah. highly. I mean, this has been a great conversation. It's been a lot of fun. I really Wait, we need it. to ask with the sun though before you part. What's the priority? Sun in the balls, sun in the asshole, trying to get both at the same time but not perfectly. What's the priority? We have limited Wait, what's time. The, what's the? Uh, I'm just trying to picture what's the position you need to be in in order for your balls and <laughs> asshole to get both to get, to get sun. Like you need to be, you need some yoga pose yeah, there that for the soul. wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't be good for anyone watching. I've seen Bitcoiners post that pose on Bitcoin Twitter. You can find it. Um, all right. I'm going to give you guys the sun pill. I'm going to give you a five minute sun pill or something like sun that. Pill. So hit us. Answer to the question. The eyes is the most important by far. It's not sun on your skin. It's sun in your eye. Why is that? Because there's a part of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. This governs all circadian rhythm for your body. Bottom line. Every single process from your hormone production, you know, muscle recovery, metabolic processes, brain function, sleep repair, it's all circadian processes. 
all biology on this planet grew up in the 24-hour light-dark cycle. Melatonin, critical sleep hormone, does a lot more besides that, has been evolutionarily conserved for 2.4 billion years. It's in single-celled organisms. It's in plants. It's in animals. It is has been unchanged biologically for 2.4 billion years because of how critical circadian biology is to all life on this planet. And so the principal regulator of all of your processes is light via the eyes. And so getting out in the morning, seeing the sunrise or seeing the sun shortly after the sunrise, no glasses, no contact lens, direct light on the eye, UVA on the eye, uh, most important part, hands down, skin then comes after that, um, not just vitamin D, everyone knows vitamin D, but infrared light has this incredibly interesting thing where it will penetrate up to six inches. So it will go six inches down and it actually irradiates the water inside of your cells. And what it does is mitochondria, which are like, you know, the powerhouse of the cell, right? They produce all your ATP. They produce all your energy. It, the, the structure of the mitochondria actually has a rotary motor. There's like a literal biological rotary motor inside the mitochondria. And when the infrared light strikes the water within the cell, they actually make the water less viscous. So if you think of like a rotary motor turning through mud versus turning through clear water, it actually upregulates energy production throughout the whole body. It produces intracellular melatonin. So most melatonin in the body is actually in the cells and it has nothing to do with sleep. It is actually the most potent antioxidant, like 100x beyond anything we get from food. So like getting sun, literally energizing, literally makes your body produce more energy, vitamin D, circadian rhythm. It controls everything. Uh, you should do it. It sounds to me like UV light and Dan have a lot in common. They both claim to penetrate six inches. <laughs> so, <laughs> Hey, I, I think that's oh, pretty accurate. I, 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 I have some to research get, to do, hey, man. Honey, I got to see if my wife, she can't hear me. See if she can. I think that's Wait, probably the real question accurate. though, is where are you, where are you measuring from though? Is the real question because we, you know, we're all going to cheat. Yep. Um, Sun I, have some, hard. I do have Sun some research to do, man. Hard. The one thing you left out of that whole spiel though, which I do want to, I want to dig into this more after this talk. What advantage does sunning your butthole bring to all of that? No, no idea about the butthole, but, um, <laughs> but there is something. So people are into sunning their balls. Um, there is a plausible mechanism. So there's obviously not a lot of studies done on sunning your balls. Let's be clear. There's yep. not a lot of like large sample size studies, but there <laughs> is a plausible some Bitcoin mechanism. scientists on that. Get some researchers going. Let's sure. go. I'm ready. I'm ready for the age of Bitcoin funded health science, like completely seriously. Like, I think that's a thing and I'm very pro it. Uh, <laughs> but so that that infrared light effect um, it, there, this is like well studied that infrared light shown on the body will locally impact tissues. So one thing they're doing, they're shining infrared on the head and it impacts specifically brain function. You shine it on the gut, it literally changes your microbiome uh, composition. The bacteria change just from having a light shown on your gut. So it's proven to impact not just the whole system, but the specific area that it touches. And so if you sun your balls or if you do an infrared light, 
chances stand it upregulates what that bodily structure does, which is produce hormones, sex hormones, and you know reproductive stuff. So I would say ninety. I would put a ninety percent chance that that does work, as people say. Interesting. Yeah, I got to be careful with that. I don't need that reversing my vasectomy and causing me to have another kid. I got enough of those. We're good. Yeah, you're right. And you need a you need a <laughs> really secure there. secure backyard too. Like for me, it works. I got the privacy fence, but you do this in the wrong spot. You yeah. could end up behind bars easily. Sun your You're balls, folks. You're in trouble. Um, Steve, and this has asshole. been this has been delightful. By the way, did was I even pronouncing your last name correct? Is it Lubka? Is it Lubka? What's the yeah. what's the proper no, Lubka. E- either either or Lubka. You got it. Lubka. You got um, it. I enjoyed the shit out of cool. this one. I'm sure you did too, Josh. A lot of fun. I did. Yeah. This uh, was handoff. Awesome. I'm glad we went over your name there. I'll do the intro to this and I'll end up fucking up your last name. So Lubka. Yeah. I got it on record. Yeah. Hand off awesome. to you and your work, Steve, for our audience. Thank you. Yeah. This has been a blast. I enjoy- this was a great conversation, guys. Ton of fun. Great, great doing this. Anything you want our audience to know where they can find you, anything like that as we part ways? Yeah. Follow me on Twitter. Steven Lubka. Like you search my name. That'll be easier. You can't spell my handle and you're never going to be able to. Um, find me on Twitter. Give me a follow. Very active. Like, if you comment on my stuff, if you DM me, I will respond to you. I love Twitter. It's like hanging out with all my friends. Thanks, brother. Oh, we yeah. will see yeah. you Thank in you. LA in October. Pacific Bitcoin. See you guys. Looking there. forward to watching it. this. Yep. Come to Pacific Bitcoin. Do it. We'll be see there. You all there. With Steven may or may not be sunning our balls. We got to get a hotel where that's viable, Josh. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. we do. Corey's backyard. We're going to Corey's backyard. He, he's gonna you love just can't it. Make, love it. Kids will, like it'll be great. No, I'm kidding. You just can't Some make drone eye contact. footage of that, like ten dudes with their balls <laughs> straight up in the air. You just can't make eye contact with another dude sunning his balls. So no, it's rule no. number one. Taboo. Taboo. It's the first rule. Clipson's backyard <laughs> right, ball sunning Pacific Bitcoin. We'll see you there. I expect this to be the the intro clip you guys post on Twitter for the. <laughs> oh, we'll definitely will be one of them. For sure. A lot of There's options. plenty to choose from here. A lot of options. See you, Steve. See you. See ya. Let us know what you thought of this rip. We love to get the feedback. Leave us a review on your favorite podcast app of choice and DM us on Twitter or email us and let us know what you think. If you haven't tried out Fountain for listening to podcasts yet, we highly encourage it. You can get paid to listen to your favorite podcasts. Why wouldn't you? Before you go, I want you to listen very carefully to this repeat clip of Dan pretending to get spanked from this episode. And uh, leave us some comments, DMs, emails. Tell us what you think of this.